Hello again, and welcome to Robert Whiting's Japan, a weekly podcast where you can learn about the past, present, and future of the nation. We discuss current events and trends and the newsmakers who are shaping them. I'm your host, Jack Gallagher. Bob, how are you doing today? Uh, pretty good. A little bronchitis, so Uh-oh. pardon my voice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, uh, I understand that uh, you spent some time this morning watching the uh, Trump-Clinton debate. Uh, yeah, what's, no, what's your takeaway? Like a mixed martial arts fight. <laughs> That's quite something. I don't know. I thought, you know, Trump did a lot better than he did the first time. I I, I thought it was about a draw, I guess. Mm. <clears throat> At least he didn't put his foot in his mouth. He said he was going to put her in jail, but I, that was probably a mistake. But other than that, he was okay. What uh, What is the Japanese press saying about uh, this whole uh, election cycle? What is their view? Oh, well, they're almost unanimously for Clinton and against Trump because he's put Japan into the presidential debate in a way that it hasn't been there since maybe back in the days of the late 80s and the Japanese bubble and huge trade deficits. He's been attacking Japan on trade and not paying enough for uh, defense for the support of the uh, American bases. And so, you know, they're really worried about... uh, him, if he becomes president, you know, how it's going to affect their relationship with the United States. My take is that if he is elected president, and, and nothing will change at all. <laughs> He'll just let some people who know what they're doing handle uh, foreign policy, and that will be the end of that. So if, if that's the case, though, why would he be making those comments? Uh, what's your what's your uh, feeling? Why, why would he say this if in reality nothing would happen or change? Well, you know, the Japanese could be paying more. You know, they, they, at one point they were paying over two-thirds of the cost of the bases now, uh, maintaining the bases. Now it's gone down uh, some. But, you know, he what he overlooks is the, uh, you know, the fact that there's benefit the U.S., derives a lot of benefit from having its bases here. You know, it's not just Japan is getting benefit from protection from U.S. forces, you know. It's part of the strategic uh, uh, program of the United States. And, uh, you know, those bases in Okinawa are located strategically along the sea lanes. Uh, uh, so it's a really valuable place for them to have bases. So you know, you could say that if they paid for everything, it would still uh, be a benefit to the United States. Uh, I think that he, he throws Japan in as an afterthought because there still is, uh, uh, U.S. has a trade deficit. But, I, you know, I think if there's a uh, some, you know, country to attack in this, it would be China because China has uh, been running up huge deficits uh I mean, the U.S. Has, has been running up huge deficits in its trade with China. And, there's, it's, you know, we've lost a lot of jobs in the United States because of back manufacturing in China. That's something that has to be addressed. But uh, it seems to me that he throws in Japan as an afterthought after he gets through attacking China. But, uh, you know, I, th- <clears throat> I, I think he's making a mountain out of a molehill. I think he's just doing that because it appeals to a certain percentage of his base. And if he is elected president of the United States, 
I assume, you know, that he'll just hand over the running of the country to, uh, uh, people who know what they're doing. You know, he'll, t- he'll make good on some of his presidential, uh, I mean, you know, election campaign, presidential election campaign promises like, you know, increasing border security and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> stiffer penalties on U.S. companies that locate overseas and cost the, the loss of uh, jobs to American workers, that sort of thing. Those are his, you know, two big campaign points. But I don't think that he will do, as far as Japan is concerned, I doubt he'll do anything at all. Well, That's my opinion for what it's worth, and it's not worth it, if you ask me. <laughs> Uh, well, Bob, I will say this. Uh, can you ever recall any Japanese election being as entertaining as uh, the one we're looking at now? Uh, I, uh, not exactly, but Ishihara Shintaro, any time that he's run for president of the Liberal Democratic Party, it's always been entertaining. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and that's, when he's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, uh, on to a, uh, a more serious subject. Uh, several weeks ago, uh, a young actor named Yuta Takahata was arrested uh, for raping a hotel worker in uh, Maibashi. And uh, subsequently, uh, charges were not filed. And uh, it looks like, you know, there was some kind of a financial agreement uh reached uh, what 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 do you think about that i mean there was a lot of outrage in the media here when it happened but it sure died down quickly well you know the family must have paid her a lot of money he you know he said he was that she was amazed she delivered something to his room she was in her 40s and he's like you know half her age she delivered something to his room and he said he was overcome with passion and he couldn't help himself so he raped her you know, I'm sure you've had that experience yourself, Jack, a lot of times. You get so overcome with passion that the, when the hotel maid walks in that you can't resist doing something illegal. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, in, in Japan, first offenses, uh, if you apologize and make restitution, you know, you very seldom go to prison. And, you know, you have to do it more than once. Uh, commit the same, a similar crime more than once, you know, before they, uh, or violate parole or probation somehow, not parole, but probation, uh, before they actually do send you to prison. They're, they're quite lenient compared to the United States. Uh, uh, as long as you apologize and show remorse and try to make up for it somehow, and in this case, money, financial restitution. But, you know, there was this case in Stanford, uh, a while back, where this Stanford star swimmer was arrested for rape. Right, right. There was a trial, and he was found guilty, but the judge only sentenced him to a few months in, in jail, which outraged everybody, but, you know, the judge is being sympathetic. In Japan, they probably, you know, would just shrug and say, what the heck, but in America, it was a big deal, and uh, the judge has, has since been removed from criminal court, moved to civil cases. Right. And uh, Governor Jerry Brown also uh, amended the law uh, within like the last 10 days or so to make it uh, a stiffer penalties or something like that. Oh, really? How, how much stiffer? Uh, I'm not sure, but there's like some mandatory minimum now, I believe, uh, like, you know, at least five years or, or something like that. Uh, I, I can't recall all the exact details, but uh, Bob, with regards to the Takahata case, 
perhaps the most unusual uh, episode of the whole situation was his mother and that uh, that press conference, uh, a seventy-minute press conference dressed in all black, apologizing uh, for what her son did. I mean, what what did you think of that? Well, I was thinking, I wish I had a mother like that. <laughs> you know, if I did something like that, my mother would be the first one to report me to the police, I think. But, uh, I, you know, I thought she, you know, she did what most mothers would do, I think. And she's in a position to do something. She has a lot of money. And uh, she has, uh, you know, high profile in Japan. So she took advantage of it and did whatever she could to help her son. So, so him. Yeah, do you but so your is your your opinion is that I mean in most cases uh legal counsel would advise the family not to say anything, right? So yeah. but do you think that by doing this she was trying to shape the narrative and uh gain some sympathy or what what what, what was the motive? Uh well, you know, apology goes a, a long way. And, she, you know, the guy had a famous mother. And uh, I think having her apologize alongside him, I know he wasn't alongside her in that press conference, but, you know, it goes a long way towards uh, appeasing people. I think, uh, uh you know, it's quite clear that what he did was that he did what he did. He didn't deny that he he did it. He didn't say that it was consensual. He didn't say the maid came in to deliver something and jumped on top of him and started ripping his clothes off. You know, he admitted what he did and he apologized. And it's uh, it's a big thing for the mother, who's a high profile person, to uh, make an apology like that in public. You know, it's a uh, it's a loss of face for her for the family. And so it just creates a more, you know, understanding, forgiving mood. As I said, Japanese, they put a, 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 you know, a lot of stock uh, on remorse and apologies, much more than uh, the Americans do. Interesting. Okay, uh, Bob, let's move on and talk about another legal matter, and that was the... Uh the conviction uh, recently of uh, you Darvish's brother show on gambling charges and uh, the subsequent sentence. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Uh, well, he, uh, I was surprised, frankly, you know, because he was arrested before back in 2011, he was arrested for marijuana possession and for assaulting his girlfriend. And uh, he got some, you know, some sort of suspended sentence for that. And so on this arrest here, you know, for gambling, he's running this, you know, multi-million dollar gambling ring. Uh, he, uh, he, and he was convicted. That's a felony, too. He should have gone uh, to prison this time. But uh, as I understand it, his lawyer, you know, had connections with uh, the judge and, uh, you know, some strings were pulled. I'm not sure quite how. Uh, but, you know, he, he dodged the bullet this time. He got, uh, what was it, a three or four year sentence, but it was suspended. Oh, excuse me, two years sentence to two years and four months in prison, but suspended for five years. Uh, and, 
you know, I what got me what what I enjoyed about it was the judge. Darver said he was going to change his name because he didn't want to bring any more shame on the family. And the judge said, well, why don't you think about changing your behavior <laughs> as long as you're changing your name? <laughs> and uh, that was pretty funny. But I thought, yeah, I guess he lucked out. You know, he... Yeah, I mean, uh, it just, uh, as you said, with the uh, previous uh, incident, uh, right. and this was not a... Um, I mean, this was not a minor thing. This was like a serious, a serious uh, matter. And when you add in the fact of his brother being a professional baseball player, uh, right. you know, it's it's really uh, it's really kind of a head scratcher uh, in the sense that, um, you know, he he was let off. I mean, essentially with a slap on the wrist. Uh, yes, I know. It makes you wonder if there was any money exchanged under the table, uh, doesn't it? But, you know, I have no inside information other than the fact that the lawyer was, uh, you know, knew the, knew the right judge. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I really can't say, but it just, it just, it's, it's as, you know, to quote, uh, uh, Hamlet, uh, it, it stinks to high heaven. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Well, we'll see what happens uh, if he's able to stay on the straight and narrow now because uh, he's got two strikes against him, and it seems pretty obvious that if something happens again, he is going to be put away. Well, I'd be willing to make a small side bet with you, Jack, that something will happen again in the future. You know, the, uh, the, the guy is just uh, trouble, black sheep of the family. I wonder how much resentment there is in the family towards, you know, his brother, because his brother seemed to get all the attention and all the breaks. And, uh, you know, they both played baseball, but Hugh Darvish is the one who wound up in the major leagues with the, the multi-million dollar contract. And, you know, the brother wound up in, in the Osaka underworld. Uh, but, yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh I, I I predict that you know this isn't the last time that we'll see him in court. All right, I think I think you're probably right, Bob. Uh, okay, uh, let's move along to something else that uh, caused a bit of a uh, an uproar a few weeks ago, and that was the the sexist video or alleged sexist video in which a city in uh, Kagoshima uh, ran a I guess a promotional video about. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what, uh, but she turned from an from a woman uh, a woman in a swimsuit morphed into an eel, and that was called sexist. Now, what, right. what say you? Well, she, yeah, she was this you know really nice looking young woman in a in a swimsuit, a one piece swimsuit, I might add, not a bikini, and uh, she was frolicking in this pool, and she was. You know, saying "feed me," <laughs> time passes, and yeah, she puts on a little weight, and then she morphs into an eel, and you know, the next thing you see is this eel on a grill. I'm not, I know it was criticized as sexist to me. It was just a little creepy. You know, it's like the guy, the guy who, who did the commercial was keeping her. You know, to to eat her, you know, fatten her up and eat her. <coughs> it was ghoulish more than sexist, if you ask me. <coughs> Excuse me. Call it. <coughs> Call an <it> ambulance. 
Yeah, the um, you know, it was one of those things where you wonder where like uh, what what was the person that came up with this thinking? You know, like uh, what were they on when they were doing this? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, it just uh, it was uh, again another another head scratcher. And uh, I mean, I guess on the one hand, you could say it was it was unique. It was something different. But uh, do you really think it qualified as sexist? No, as I, I don't think it was sexist. I just think it was creepy. Yeah. Raising. <laughs> it, there's got some, you know, overtones of cannibalism in it. <laughs> and it was just uh, a really bizarre. Uh, somebody with a, a warped uh, sense of humor. Uh, but, you know, if it has a plus side, it reminds people where food comes from. I, guess. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, wow. uh, okay, I, um, enough on that. Uh, Bob, let's move on and talk about uh, somebody who has also been quite prominent in the news in the last several months, and that is the uh, Japan Defense Minister, Tomomi Inada. Yeah. Uh, she seems to be somebody that's really on the rise Yes, she is. Uh, people say that she, she she's a future prime minister. Uh, very very interesting woman. I mean, Wasita grad. Uh, she's been in government. Uh, she's an attorney, and then she got into government. Uh, she defended uh, the uh, plaintiff in a case over this contest to kill a hundred people using a sword. You remember that famous World War Two contest between two Japanese officers to see how many they could kill. Uh, it would be the first to behead a hundred uh, Chinese uh, during the, the, the rape of Nanjing period. But, uh, uh, you know, she's really a hardcore right-winger. Uh, she has close ties to Nippon Kaigi, this, you know, hardcore right-wing group. Uh, she believes that uh, you know the spirit of uh, and the spirit of the real spirit of Shinto animates uh, emperors dating back to the early Jimu era. Uh, she denies that there were the Japanese Imperial Army ever hired any uh, or recruited any uh, uh, comfort women uh, against their will. Uh, she. Uh, she denies that there was a, a rape of uh, Shanghai. Wow. And uh, there, there was a massacre. She denies there was a massacre there. She denies that the the Japan started the war with China. Uh, so, you know, as far as right-wingers go, she's, you know, pretty out there. You can't get any more to the right than she is. Uh, well, I guess you could, but I mean, she's, you know, uh, she's quite something. She's a regular visitor to the Yasukuni Shrine. You know how sensitive that is for Japanese politicians. In right. fact, when she became defense minister, everybody was watching. What's she going to do? You know, when uh, August rolls around. And so uh, Abe solved that problem by sending her to the Horn of Africa <laughs> to inspect some Japanese troops that are over there doing some, on some humanitarian mission. But, uh, and you know, she also says that the Japan, the War Crimes Tribunal, uh, uh, was, uh, 
was not fair that Japan was singled out, that it was unjust. Uh, so it's just wow. quite something. And, you know, if people think that Abe is is too too far right wing, just wait until she becomes prime minister. She's well, like Margaret Thatcher squared, I guess. <laughs> I was just gonna I was just gonna ask you if you could compare it to somebody and I was gonna bring up Thatcher's name, but you read my mind. Great minds think alike. <laughs> so, Bob, what is her? I mean, what is her family background? Is it is it in politics? Uh, like you know, a lot of times it's the <laughs> granddaughter or whatever of a previous prime minister. Is there any kind of precedent here? Uh, not that I know of. I don't know much about her background other than the fact that she went for, to Washington. But I'm sure she comes from a wealthy family. Uh, most wealthy families in Japan are are conservative, right wing. So, uh, but you know, I you know, I really don't. I should have done my homework, but as you can tell, I've been battling this horrible case of bronchitis, so I had to go see the doctor. So I had to spend valuable time that I should <laughs> spend preparing for this program. No because, problem. No problem. So, Bob, do you think that uh, <laughs> do you think that this gal could be? The successor to Abe, or is this farther down the line we're talking about as a possible prime minister? Uh, I don't. I don't see why she couldn't. You know, if she swings his boat. You know, he became <clears throat> Abe himself was prime minister back in uh, in two thousand seven. Right. And he was he had, he had a really bad case of colitis, and he had to resign. Uh, you know, he was the youngest prime minister in, in Japanese post-war history. And that, I think that time he was in his early 50s. Uh, I think that was about, yeah, 10, 10 years ago. What is he, 63 now, I think? Yeah, that uh, sounds about right. Uh, so, you know, she's, what, 56, 57? He's got another couple years in office, maybe more. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, no, I wouldn't be. I think it would be. I'm not sure if it would be a good thing for Japan. I guess it would be a good thing from the standpoint of, you know, sexual equality. Uh, I wonder if. Uh, I think she'd probably have a better chance of becoming prime minister than than Koike, the new governor of Tokyo, because she Koike has alienated the LDP, and I doubt she would get their support. In, uh, in, uh, you know, if she decided to run for president of the LDP, and if she decided to run as a uh, <clears throat> member of the DPJ, uh, she wouldn't have enough votes because they don't have enough power anymore. You know, the LDP is still pretty uh, <clears throat> powerful in Japan. They're even more dominant now than they have been in a long time. So, I w yeah, I would I would say that's be very interesting when she becomes president. Yeah. <laughs> You got that right. Uh, Bob, speaking of uh, Koike, the, uh, this issue with the review of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic venues and the uh, request that three more be scrapped uh, yeah. has caused quite an uproar uh, in the international uh, sporting community. And uh, how do you see this and uh, how do you see the fallout from it going forward? Well, have they decided 
for sure now. I know they were talking no. about. No, they haven't. They haven't decided, and uh, in fact, they're resisting it. Uh, and the latest is that uh, Koike is supposed to meet with Thomas Bach, the uh, president of the IOC, at some point, uh, sometime soon, to discuss it. Well, their their choice, the fact that Tokyo was chosen for the 2020 games, is is predicated on a number of things. One of them would be these ven ven venues that they've promised to build. And, you know, by using old venues and not building the new ones and using, you know, cost as a reason, cost overruns as a reason, then, you know, they're sort of negating the reason they were chosen in the first place. Actually, the reason they were chosen in the first place was because the other two candidates sort of disqualified themselves. Uh, right. Istanbul and Madrid for economics and civil unrest reasons. Uh, but, you know, the cost... Uh, you know, what is the cost of the games now? The estimated cost, three trillion? It's yeah, about... it's, uh, but, but this is, these are, uh, figures that were, uh, put forth by Koike and her group who are trying to, you know, slash the cost. So it, it's a yeah. bit, uh, it's a bit dubious, I would say, at the very least. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Bob, the, the question is this, is that as you pointed out, you know, there was a, a, a plan that was given to the IOC, the so-called compact games plan, right? About how all the venues were going to be very close. It was That's be, right. Yeah, very easy for everybody to get around, right? And now, as you know, I mean, uh, they've they've moved the, uh, what is it, the cycling has gone down to Ito, and uh, now they they want to try to move the rowing to Sendai. And, uh, right. I mean, it's getting it's getting farcical, and I think – the international sporting community is starting to say, "Hey, you know, wait a minute." And uh, what I mean, what do you think uh, Koike is trying to do here? Because obviously, she, you know, you just talked about her alienating the LDP. She's that's not the only people she's alienating. What what is she trying to do? Well, she's trying to control costs for one thing, because you know the metropolitan government has to pay for a lot of this uh, construction that's going on. Uh, you know, it's, I think they're not the only ones that have to pay. You know, there's some uh, private uh, companies involved in the, the JOC and, and the, uh, I think, the Ministry of Education. I, I'm not sure I have to go back and check, but there are a number of different groups that pay, but I think most of it is paid for by the, if I'm not mistaken, by the Tokyo Metropolitan Government. And, you know, there is a question, a real question of rising costs. Uh, you know what they I, I forget the exact figures that they started out with, but you know now it's up to about six times of what it originally was. You know, this always happens in the Olympics. Right. And they say, well, we don't have any time. You know, we have to worry about we'll pay for it later. We'll figure out how to you know uh, pay for it later. We got to get it done, or else we're going to be embarrassed in front of the world. We got to do this stuff, and I don't know. In the end, they'll wind up you know going to Kickstarter maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, I mean, you've written extensively about uh, the 1964 Olympics. You were here during that time. And the question is, is that with the, you know, canceling of venues and uh, trying to use prefab buildings instead, I mean, right. what, what will be the legacy of the 2020 Games if there are hardly any new venues. I mean, there won't be a Budokan. There won't be a Yo-Yogi. What, what's going to be the legacy of this? 
Uh, well, Japan not going bankrupt would be one legacy, I guess. Uh, you know, the, what people, people look back at the 1964 Olympics and they say what a great success it was and how it transformed Tokyo. And I'm one of those people who said that. But at the same time, you could say that they, uh, they went, uh, uh, you know, like I think five times over the original estimate, uh, could wound up costing them, uh, uh, three billion dollars, uh, for everything. Uh, one third of that was the Shinkansen, which came in at double the original estimate and cost the head of the JR his job. Uh, and they, they had eight highways, uh, highways and expressway, excuse me, eight overhead expressways planned for construction for the Olympics over the city. And, uh, only half of them were completed by the time the Olympics. So, and, and also because, of, you know, some of these highways, because the land was too expensive, Yakuza and fishermen got together and jacked up the prices that, the Tokyo government couldn't buy the land to build the, the uh, you know, monorail uh, from Tokyo into Shinbashi or Tokyo Station, which they originally planned. Right. And, and the same with the highways, uh, over, the overhead expressways. They didn't have the land, so they wound up having to build both the monorail and the highway over water. The highways over water. And so the pillars... Uh, destroyed marine life in the, uh, uh, Condor River. Uh, the, uh, overhead expressways destroyed the, uh, the, the view of Mount Fuji from the Hombashi Bridge. It looks like it passes overhead by about 10 feet above it. Uh, I mean, it's really a travesty the way that looks. And the, uh, the monorail stopped at Hamamatsu. Because they couldn't afford to buy any more land. They just, the Hamamatsu is like the most inconvenient place, you know, you could think of if you're coming in from a long international flight. You want to go to your carrying your bags, you want to go take the train into Tokyo the hotel and you stop in Hamamatsu. I mean, that's a, a total, uh, mess. Uh, so, you know, they, you look back to the, you know, the, the golden haze of history and the Tokyo Olympics looks like a big success, but there were a lot of things wrong with it. And I suspect the same thing will happen with these Olympics. There'll be all sorts of things wrong with it, but in the end, it'll, it'll leave such a, a nice afterglow because the Japanese are actually very good about putting, putting on this sort of thing. Uh, that I think <clears throat> even if they don't build any new venues, Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the world will get a, a new look at Tokyo on television. And once they see these, the whole new side of Tokyo is put up, you know, on the, uh, the Tokyo Bay side, you know, where 080 is and Toyosu and the new Tsukiji fish market is going to be moved there. Uh, you know, the view from the, uh, the Rainbow Bridge of the Tokyo skyline, which is just filled with skyscrapers, is, you know, one of the most beautiful urban uh, views in the world, and especially at sunset. I mean, it's just stunning. It's right up there with, uh, uh, you know, Sydney and San Francisco and some of these other cities. Uh, but most people don't know that. Right. And I think that, you know, they think uh, Tokyo in terms of the Asakusa Kanan Temple or Tokyo Tower or... Uh, 
you know, whatever, the downtown Ginza. And they don't realize that this side of Tokyo is really exciting, you know, attractive side of the city exists. Mm. This whole new city has been built up in the past 20, 25 years. And so the world will get a look at that, but I think that will really increase the uh, improve Japan or Tokyo's, you know, reputation in much the same way as the 64 Olympics gave introduced a new, totally transformed uh, urban scape uh, uh, to the rest of the world. Okay, Bob, uh, let's change gears here and talk about uh, singer Hikaru Utada, who has uh, just recently put out her first album in many years. Uh, tell us yeah. about Hikaru Utada. Well. You're asking the wrong guy. All I know about her is that she had a lot of hit records. Some of her albums are on the, you know, best, the all time best selling list. She created her own sound. I know that. She grew up in New York. Her mother was Keiko uh, Fuji, the, the uh, singer, Anka singer. And, uh, and, you know, she grew up in New York City and she, well, she came back here and she went to the American school in Japan. So she's, you know, completely bilingual, but she came up with this sound of, you know, guitar, piano, uh, synthesizer and, uh, you know, computer programming, uh, different sounds. And it has this kind of whine to it. Uh, you know, I can't, there's no way I can duplicate it, but it's very distinctive. And she created that. And I remember that, uh, you know, for a period of 10 years in the first part of the century, that's all you could hear in Tokyo was, you know, uh, Utada Hikaru's music. Uh, and, uh, you know, she tried several times to, you know, to crack the American market, music market, and she failed. I mean, no Asian performer has ever been able to crack the North American market for reasons that somehow elude me, but, uh, uh, she's, was, uh, you know, I've seen a couple of interviews where she seems like a, a very nice person, level-headed. Her mother committed suicide. Right. Jumped off the 11th floor of a apartment building in Shinjuku. Uh, so, uh, you know, other than that, <clears throat> I don't have much to say about her. She got married once, and I thought she married her. Was she married a musician or right? It was like a producer or something. That was that was a long time ago. And then she recently, I believe, remarried and divorced again, didn't she? Is that right? Well, she had a kid. I don't know if she got divorced yet, but I remember when she married this guy. She said, "Well, uh, I'm not exactly the most beautiful creature in the world, so." She'd be satisfied with what I've got or something like that. It was really funny, I thought, when she said that. Uh, she, uh, that first album of hers was called uh, First Love, and uh, that was a smash hit. I mean, it was one of the all-time uh, selling records in the history of Japan, or uh, albums, or whatever we call them now, CDs or downloads. Anyway, it was, uh, it was a fantastic success, and it was the kind of success that... Uh, would almost be impossible to duplicate, you know. I mean, when you start out with that, where do you go, right? And, uh, I don't what that sounds like. Could you sing a few bars for me, no. Jeff? <laughs> no, I think I'll pass. 
But uh, you can find it on YouTube. The, the 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 hit song was called Automatic. That was the uh, that okay. Was, I remember. Yeah. All yeah right. That Got was it. the and it was like you said it was really uh, you know the sound and the uh, synthesizing was really something else. And uh, you mentioned that uh, about her mom had been a famous singer. Do you remember her mother? Yes, I do. I her mother was. Uh, on TV quite a lot when I first came here when I was a student and I was working here in the 70s. I remember her mother. Mother was a nice-looking woman. Yes. Yeah, nice voice, nice long hair. I mean, very attractive. She had her own persona. Yeah, she was quite beautiful. And uh, something interesting, Bob, that I came across in the research of the uh, of Utada and her mom was that Apparently, she had a quite uh, antagonistic relationship with Utada's father, and according to what I read, they were married and divorced seven times. Jesus. That may be a record. Yeah. That's more than Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> you got that right. Oh, boy. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's good that uh, she does have a, an incredible amount of fans, and it's a good thing that, uh, you know, she's back making music, and uh, it was obviously very tragic what happened to her mother. She, I know in some of those interviews afterwards, she said that, you know, her mother had been battling mental illness for several years, and uh, just quite sad the way it all ended. But, uh, okay, uh, Bob, let's talk about um, the... Uh, Let's talk about the expanded use of wiretapping by authorities uh, in Japan. Uh, they're, uh, they're making a play here to uh, have a greater uh, latitude in ordering wiretapping on uh, suspected criminals. Yeah. Uh, is, this just, is this just part of the trend that we're seeing Yahoo and other companies just agreeing to everything with governments? Uh, well, this is part of the police, uh, you know, uh, attempt to get organized crime and terrorism under control. You know, they're worried about having some uh, more, more than organized crime. They're worried about having, you know, some terror event, you know, between now and the Olympics, uh, which would be bad for Japan's uh, reputation as a peaceful country. Uh, and so they, uh, you know, they expanded the law and, you know, essentially what it means is that the, the, the you, people on public airwaves, you know, or say computers or cell phones or whatever, have no expectation of privacy. Uh, before, it used to go, you, you used to have, a, you get a, a court order, and then you could go to NTT or one of these providers and tap into their communication system. Uh, in the presence of company employees, but now they have to send you the data. You get direct access to it. Uh, and, uh, it's, a, it's invasion of privacy, but, and, uh, but they get, according to this recent survey, they get court approval 99.9% .9 of the time. So <laughs> it's, you know, they're just, they're just doing what, uh, uh, they're just, you know, copying what's going on in the United States, you know, with the NSA and Snowden, people listening to all your phone calls. They've got this Stingray device they call that can tell you, uh, that can, within <clears throat> like 10 seconds, it can tap into your phone and tell you who you're calling, when you're calling, why you're calling. Uh, so it's, 
you know, we, so just be careful what you say on the phone, Jack. <laughs> don't, you know, don't, don't criticize the government. Don't threaten to blow up any government buildings and you'll be okay. Oh, boy. 99.97%, huh? That's right. It used to be there, you could get a, a wiretap, uh, you know, for illegal drugs, firearms, a trade, human smuggling, and murders involving organizations. In fact, I know of a club uh, in Rapungi that uh, where there was a lot of drug trade going on, and the police, you know, set up a video surveillance system there. They watched, they recorded everybody, everything that went on in that club, and they wound up making some arrests. Uh, now they've expanded it to fraud, theft, murder, and arson. Any kind of murder and arson. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, Big Brother is here. Wow. Wow. Um, okay, Bob, let's, uh, let's talk about a, a very sober topic here, and that was the, uh, the suicide uh, several months back of a young Dentsu employee uh, who was believed to have been overworked. And uh, it was a young gal named Matsuri Takahashi who was only 24 years old, and killed herself on Christmas Day in the uh, Dentsu company dorm. And uh, according to the story, uh, she had logged around 105 hours of monthly overtime in the uh, preceding months. And, uh, I mean, does it surprise you that this kind of stuff is still going on? We've been hearing about Karoshi for like 25 years now. Is, does it surprise you or not? No, not at all. I, I think it's uh, it's... You know, I don't think anything has changed. The government is, is, is always releasing these figures about Japan's, you know, they're part of UN studies and government cooperating with these international organizations, the WHO and what have you, or the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the International Labor Organization. And, uh, and they will say, well, the Japanese only work 40 hours a week, you know, because when you join a company, your contract says you work from nine to five and uh, you get an hour off for lunch and, and that's it. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe if you work overtime, they'll, they'll pay you for like for an hour or something. What they don't uh, discuss very much, which is why this recent report was so interesting, is the unpaid overtime. And the government has always been, you know, the, the past 10, 20 years, as I can remember, the government has always been issue, issuing these decrees, you know, that companies should stop overworking their workers and say that if the, the contract says 5 o'clock, you should go home at 5 o'clock. And if you make them work another extra hour, then you pay them such and such and don't keep them, you know, longer than 7. But what happens is that... <clears throat> the boss will gather everybody and say, well, we're going to ignore these rules. If you want to keep your job, you'll work when we, you know, as long as we, we need you to work. And this being Japan, nobody complains. There are very few people complain. They'll go along with it. People need jobs. Uh, and, uh, you know, nobody wants to be the nail that sticks up in Japan, which was probably the case in this poor girl. 105 hours of monthly overtime. That's like, that's four hours a day. For the entire month, yeah? For the entire month. So that means that she was there until nine o'clock every night. 
uh, and you know, it's like 10 o'clock until she gets home. She lives in the Densu dormitory, so 10, 10.30, and she yeah. gets eight hours sleep. She gets up at seven and, you know, back to work. She can no social life at all to speak of. She probably just, when Sunday comes around, she probably called into the office for, to do something there as well. Uh, but, you know, I don't, uh, this story, I've seen stories like this, you know, for, you know, going on 20 years now. In fact, the first guy, Dentsu employee, I'm meeting here who committed suicide because of uh, long hours, Karoshi, the Japanese say, was in 1991. 25 years. That's right. And so here we are 25 years later. Same thing. So as long as, uh, you know, what's going to happen is uh, people will still continue to be overworked. And, you know, nothing, this is not a litigious society. So you're not going to see, you know, people suing their uh, employers for overworking them. Maybe when they collapse and die, their families will sue them because they know that they can get some, you know, benefits from the government for that sort of thing, work-related death. Uh, but I don't see anything that will change, not in this society. No. Yeah, it's very, it's very sad. 25 years ago, people were having the exact same conversation we're having now. Right, right. No, it's just very sad because, uh, you know, here's a young gal, a beautiful young gal whose life was just wiped out uh, because of uh, selfishness uh, on the part of her employer, right? And uh, I don't know, it's it's just kind of sad, you know, it's just, <clears throat> it's just something that... Uh, you know, the government, it seems like at some point should intervene, but they just kind of look the other way, right? I mean, why isn't there any kind of massive fine handed down in this kind of case? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just very sad. Uh, along these lines, Bob... Uh, Bensu, you know, donates a lot of money to the LVP. Well, that's just it, right? You're, you're not near the truth, you're at it. Yeah, I mean, that's just it. And so one hand washes the other. Um, but along these lines of what we're talking about, Yahoo Japan has recently uh, talked about adopting a four-day work week. What, right. uh, what do you think about that? Is that going to change anything, or are people just going to be working 10 hours a day on their four days in the office? I think what you said is probably what will happen, 10 hours a day on their four days in the office. Or, you know, it's, if it's you know a computer-based company, like Yahoo is, you know, people can, they'll be working at home too. You know? uh, in fact, they have that as part of their, the Yahoo has that as part of their program. So uh, I don't, I just don't see any way that the average Japanese worker is going to be working less in the future than he is now. It just doesn't seem to be in the DNA of this country. Right. Now, when you first got here, Bob, is it not true that many of the companies work six days a week? Well, they still do. Or that, you know, you go in Saturday morning, or even if you're supposed to have the day off, you still go in anyway to show your solidarity. When I first came here, it was six days a week. Then on Sunday, you know, you had some company event that you had to attend. It'd be right. a wedding reception or a golf outing or, you know, something. You just couldn't stay home and crash and, you know, uh, 
you know, depressurize yourself, decompress. You just, uh, you know, you had to, you were part of the company seven days a week. So in that sense, it's changed because most people have Sundays to themselves these days, but not entirely. Government workers, the bureaucracies, the ministries, those are seven-day-a-week uh, affairs. Uh, so uh, that's, you know, that that's where you see the most, I think the most glaring examples of overwork is in the, the ministries, the, the bureaucracies, government bureaucracies, high-level ones, because there's so much competition. Right, right, and those those jobs are a lot of pressure, right? And so those those are probably the people that should be work not be working the uh, longest hours, right? Yeah, wow. but you have to. I know people there uh, in you know in uh, you know the trade ministries, the foreign ministries. You know, there are people that are, they stay and sack out on cots rather than take the commute home. Just stay there the whole week. Maybe they'll go home on the weekends. Say hello to the wife and kids. But mm -hmm. there's work to be done. So they're there until midnight and they'll sack out on a, have a glass of sake with their friends and a paper cup and sack out on a, a cot next to their desk. Well, this, in spite of this, uh, Bob, data is now showing that uh, foreigners residing in Japan is at an all-time record high. What, uh, what do you attribute this to? The weekend. That's the only reason I can think of. It's cheaper. It was cheaper to live here than uh, was before. Uh, uh, Japan has. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I speak. You know, Tokyo is a very modern city. It's a very pleasant city to live in. Everything works. Transportation is the best in the world. It's crime free. Uh, there's a lot of good reasons to live here, and because it's cheaper than it, it was a, f a few years ago, thanks to the weakening in, that's why you have more people living here. Uh, the healthcare system is uh, outstanding, one of the best in the world. But uh, I think is if the, the now the the yen dollar is what around 103. It was yeah, 125, uh, you know, more than a year ago. Mm -hmm. Ever goes down back to 80, 75, then I think your, the number of foreign residents is going to start decreasing along with the, you know, the number of tourists. It's, they don't, they don't say that. They never mention this in their, the, these reports that come out. Perhaps because, you know, the justice ministry doesn't, is, is, you know, they don't want to, step on, you know, interfere in the work of the finance ministries. So they don't want to say anything that will affect the yen dollar exchange rate. Maybe maybe that's it. I don't know. But they never cite, uh, you know, the uh, the weaker yen. But that's obviously the reason. What else could it be? Well, that's it. And there's, there does have to be a reason. Uh, and uh, it's likely a financial one, as you've uh, pointed out. Um, Okay, Bob, let's uh, talk about uh, an honor that the Prime Minister Shinzo Abe recently received, and that was the Global Citizen Award. Uh, can you explain that? Well, see, first he, he transferred $10 million in the bank account of the Atlantic Council executive, and then shortly after that he received the award. Ha, 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 I'm just kidding, but not much. Uh, I think that... You know, the Atlantic Council is a, 
international think tank that has ties to NATO. You know, they're a fairly conservative organization. And Abe has always, uh, you know, publicly supported NATO, saying uh, that, you know, Japan should uh, cooperate as much as it can with NATO. And the Atlantic Council has long said that Japanese should be more active in international political affairs. Uh, so, you know, because of his, you know, stance towards NATO, that's the reason why he was given this award, Global Citizen Award. So, that and, you know, suitcase full of, yeah, I don't know, I'm just kidding. Uh-huh. But I wouldn't be surprised at all. But, uh, I mean, this, I may look like somebody who deserves a Global Citizen Award to you. Well, that's that's why we're discussing it because uh, it seemed kind of an odd uh, an odd honor, and uh, just trying to figure out, you know, what uh, what was really behind it, and uh, perhaps perhaps you have figured it out. I don't know. But well, uh, it's NATO and the Atlantic Alliance. If it was the Pacific Alliance or ASEAN nations or anything that China had anything to do with, I don't think that Abe would be getting a Global Citizens Award. Good point. Yeah. Huh. Okay, so, uh, go ahead. Uh, so the Chinese are not part of NATO and they're not part of the Atlantic Council. So right. that's one reason why he got the award. Okay. Okay, uh, Bob, let's uh, move on here and talk about uh, the Hall of Fame pitcher Takahiko Besho, uh, winner of more than 300 games in his uh, illustrious yeah. career. Yeah, he was cool. I liked him. 310 games. He pitched for the Giants in the 40s, the 50s. He started out with Nankai, then he moved to Giants. And, uh, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, lifetime ERA of 2018. But I, uh, he was famous for this uh, Koshien tournament that he played in as a high school. He was a pitcher in high school. And uh, he pitched this game, and in the, during the game, the, the seventh, eighth, ninth inning, something like that, he collided with a base runner covering from when he was covering first base, and uh, he dislocated his shoulder. Somebody say he broke his arm as well. His left arm, his pitching arm, was his right arm. So he put his arm in a sling, and he pitched the next four innings. Uh, you know, with his, his pitching arm was still okay, but he he would <clears throat> make a pitch and then the catcher would, you know, uh, roll the ball back to him on the pitcher's mouth, you know, because he, he didn't have a pitcher's glove. Well, he did, but, you know, he couldn't move his arm, his left arm. Wow. So the catcher would roll the ball back to him and he'd pick it up and he'd wind up and with his arm in a, sl- in a sling and he'd pitch and he pitched like that for four innings. Until the pain got so much that he had to come out of the game. But he made this famous quote. He was going to the, you know, he was drafted the following year by the Japanese Imperial Army. He was quoted as saying, I want to play as much baseball as I possibly can before I die. So he didn't expect to make it back, but he did come back. And then he was poached by the Yomiuri Giants in 1948 uh, in what's known as the Besho headhunting incident. And then he uh, uh, played for the Giants for the next 12 years, and he retired, became a coach. And then uh, he uh, 
he it was an all-star nine times. He won 20 games eight different times, went into the Hall of Fame. Uh, he uh, 72 shutouts, fourth on the all-time list in Japanese baseball. And then he made quite a career for himself on television. Fuji T Pro Yaku News, he used to be on there. Right. I remember seeing him often. Yes, he had this great, big, infectious life. He was a big, tall guy, and broad shoulder, always laughing. And he had these big, gray, bushy eyebrows that used to wiggle all the time to make people laugh. And uh, he was funny because he knew the names of everybody on the Omiri Giants, of everybody who'd ever played for the Omiri Giants, but he couldn't remember the names of even the biggest stars on the other team. It was funny. It's like they didn't exist. Uh and then he took over after uh, he replaced uh, Kawakami as head of the, the Giants OV club. Oh, really? Oh, really? And uh, he was head of that until he died uh, in 1999. Yeah, I remember. Uh, now, was he um, was he still pitching when you got here, Bob, or was he already retired? Oh, he'd already retired. He retired in 1960. I didn't get here until 1962. That was back when Jonah Uchi was the Giants' ace, and they had this young kid named 18-year-old kid named Hori Uchi. Mm. We had 16 and two. Brought him up in May. Had a 16 and two record the rest of the year, and he scandalized everybody because he spit on the mound. Mm-hmm. Every Giants game was televised nationwide, and this guy was up there spitting on the mound, and it was so disgusting and gross, you know, because he was ruining the image, the gentlemanly image of the the Omiri Giants. And, and besides that, when he threw really a hard fastball, you know, his cap would tilt to the right or tilt to the left, and so he would finish his follow-through, and his cap would be skewed off to one side. There's saliva dripping from his mouth, and this became a scandal, national <laughs> scandal. So until the higher-ups in Yomiri sat down and had a little talking to him, and then he stopped doing that. Now, Bob, you mentioned uh, the Besho poaching incident. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Because I'm not familiar with that. What exactly was that? Uh, I think, you know, he... He got out of his contract somehow with Nankai, and they paid him more money. Uh, I forget the details, but I re- whether they paid Nankai some money under the table or, or what happened. Uh, as I recall at that time, I think they would still have the, uh, the reserve clause would have been in effect. So the Giants just used their power and their, their financial influence to to get him, you know, the Giants have had a long uh, history of doing that, <laughs> taking the best players. That's why the Giants, the Yomiri Giants and Watanabe Tsuneo, their so-called owner, were the reason the free agent system was started in 1992, a 10-year free agent. The reason it started, it wasn't because of anything the union, the players union did. It was the owner. It was the Yomiri. Who's, uh, who decided that, you know, 10-year free agency would give them access to the top stars from other teams. <laughs> it, sort of, it sort of bullied all the other teams into going along with it. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
Okay, um, <clears throat> Bob, let's wrap up with uh, something. I'm not sure if you saw this or not, but uh, it's kind of a humorous, uh, a humorous thing. And that was the Osaka sushi chain being accused of putting too much wasabi in the foreign customers' orders. Have you heard about that? Is that right? No, I, no, I haven't. That's funny. Yeah, it's uh, a company called Ichi, Ichibazushi, and um, apparently they were alleged to have, uh, you know, laced uh, – foreign customers uh food with uh, a high degree of wasabi you know uh, horseradish and uh huh. so some people are saying it was uh you know it was intentional they're saying it was accidental and uh what say you bob uh, would that be a good way to get at somebody i didn't know about that but yeah that reminds me of that story cromarty used to tell me uh he said whenever they would go to nagoya uh that they, you know, they'd order, the players would order sushi in their hotel rooms and have it delivered. And uh, there were some of these sushi shops that would, they deliver the sushi and have extra dosage of wasabi in it. And they do it intentionally, you know, just to irritate the, make the Giants mad so they wouldn't be able to play well in the game or something like that. You know, it's this pre-meal uh, or pre-game meal. <clears throat> so he said, you know, they had like... They used to have a sushi, you know, a wasabi taster before the players <laughs> ate the sushi oh, <laughs> to see if there was too much wasabi in it. Wow. Boy, I'll tell you, diabolical stuff, huh? That's right. Those dragon fans, they'll do anything. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, before we go, we need to remind folks that Bob's books are available on Amazon and iBooks. You can email Robert Whiting's Japan at robertwhitingsjapan at gmail.com if you have a subject or a topic you would like Bob to address or a question to answer. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to Robert Whiting's Japan through iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And uh, you can also read... Bob's column every Tuesday, uh, Japanese only in the print edition only in the Yukon Fuji uh, here in Japan. And Bob, uh, what what are you writing about for tomorrow's paper? Uh, writing about the national anthem, the uh, fact that you have to you play it before every game in the United States, and uh, how you know it's. Uh, most people think of it, I mean, some people are very patriotic, but most people think of it as a kind of chore when they stand up and the national anthem is played. You know, people don't stand at attention. You know, they're looking at their cell phones or, you know, they're, you know, eating some peanuts or something like that. And I was thinking about these Japanese players who always stand there on the field respectively and they're putting their cap over their hearts like the American ball players do. I've always thought how unusual it was and how, you know, it must be a kind of torture for them because the Star Spangled Banner, you know, is not the most mellifluous song in the world and it's pretty long and you got to stand there and listen to it and pretend that it means something to you when you're actually, it's a foreign country's national anthem. And I calculated that Ichiro Suzuki has stood there and listened to, uh, uh, the national anthem, including regular season and exhibition games, now over 3,000 times. So he's got 3,000 hits, and he's also listened to the national anthem 3,000 times. And I said he deserves some sort of award, so I'm going to go out and get a pair of uh, 
you know, uh, fur-lined earplugs and, and nailed them to them. Robert Whiting gum on show. <clears throat> Oh boy! I'll tell you, boy, Bob. That's uh, that's a pretty creative. I I don't think I could have come up with that uh, statistic. Well, yeah, but yeah, I do. I I feel sorry for these people. I have to stand there and listen to it. I you know I'm I'm as patriotic as the next guy. You know I I used to vote Democrat. Now I vote Republican. All this time, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but. Uh, you know, I I really think the United States overdoes it with this national anthem. You know, it's just uh, too much. You know? Right. Uh, Why should you have to play the national anthem at a ball game? Well, and then now uh, now in the seventh inning stretch, God bless America. It, it does seem kind of like you're jamming it down people's throats, wouldn't you say? Yes, I know. I just you know, enough is enough. You now, give us a break. Uh-huh. Okay, and then uh, finally, uh, the Marlins have uh, renewed Ichiro's contract for next year. Uh, he'll be 43 here in a couple of weeks, but he batted 291. So uh, do you still see him as kind of the fourth outfielder for the team next season? Yes, he's got another, at least another 162 national anthems to listen to <laughs> before he retires. So. Oh, boy. Okay, Bob, well, listen, thanks again for a great show, and let's do it again sometime soon. All right. Okay. Thank you, Jack. We'll see you later. Bye.